Between uh, around 1969 and 1971, a uranium deposit was identified in Kakadu, uh, the traditional land of the Mirar Gunjemi people in the Northern Territory. This marked the beginning of a period of explorations and preparations and licensing of the Jabaluka mining sites by mining corporations, which were authorised by both the federal government and by the Northern Territory. And the first of these sites was the Ranger Mine. In 1974, a report was delivered by um, Justice Woodward to the Whitlam government that made the case that uh, traditional owners should possess a right of veto over mining. He said that to deny Aboriginal people the right to prevent mining on their land is to deny uh, the reality of their land rights. And under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act of 1976, the Mirar people should have been able to veto the Jabaluka site from being mined. And this is not merely inferred. In the Act itself, there is a subsection titled Mining, and it states that consent can be denied or withdrawn, basically at any point from exploration to licensing to authorisation by the local landowners if they don't want it to go ahead. But something else had happened between when Justice Woodward's report was published and the instatement of the Act in 1976, which uh, by actually what had by then become the Fraser government. And that was that Whitlam's government had made a deal with mining corporations that would permit mining at the Ranger Mine for the purposes of selling uh, uranium to Japan, basically no matter what. So thereafter, once Whitlam uh, put his support in that, no amount of opposition from traditional landowners was really able to prevent this from going forward under that act because there was this major exception that was made. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about what the nature of that exception was in a second. So when instated by the Fraser government, the Mirar people's right of veto was not only removed, there was an amendment that said that even if the area of the Ranger project area became formally Aboriginal land, the right to veto did not apply to that land. And in 1977, Malcolm Fraser said, Australia possesses 20% of the world's known reserves of low-cost uranium, and an environmental impact statement was then approved for the Ranger Mine, and its construction started in 1979. At the same time, Pan-Continental Mining, a 50% government-owned mining corporation, was preparing another environmental impact statement for another mine that was about 20 kilometres from Ranger at Jabaluka. And during this evaluation, something else happened that came to be significant later, which was that 6,000 kilometres of land that surrounded Jabaluka was declared a national park, which we now know as the Kakadu National Park. So in 1982, well after that veto had been removed from the Aboriginal Land Rights Act, and by the time mining had already started for Ranger, the Northern Land Council, which was a community body meant to represent the interests of local landowners, approved mining at Jabaluka with a 42-year mining lease. So these moves reflect the uh, myriad legal and political obstacles that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people faced in the 1970s and into the 80s. Of a specific nature, despite the presence of the Northern Land Council, the Mirar people were nevertheless, according to themselves, bullied and pressured by Energy Resources Australia into granting them permission to mine. Uh, and in return, the landowners would be paid, they were promised to be paid a share of the ERA's profits that eventuated from the project. So there was an economic incentive that was touted for the local landowners, despite the fact that they were voicing concerns about cultural and historical ties to the land. At the time, claims to land rights by Aboriginal communities on the basis of culture and history 
and links to country tended not to be on the political radar of the wider non-Indigenous community, which you know ranged from outright hostility and racism to general indifference uh, when it came to these issues. The ways that the legal system could be used against landowners was exposed during the disputes about the Jabaluka mines that followed that initial phase of exploration and extraction. Now, in 1983, we had Bob Hawke as Prime Minister, the Labor government, and he put forward a three-mine policy which was meant to prevent construction of new uranium mines beyond the existing active ones. Hawke's message led the Mirai people to understand that their country was protected from uranium mining, and for 13 years this was effectively made true by a policy that banned export permits for Jabaluka uranium. However, since the Aboriginal Land Rights Act had this exception added to it in 1982, we're talking about manipulations of legal loopholes that started and the company North Limited, the mining company, which was later bought by Rio Tinto, started the development of another Jabaluka uranium mine. In 1991, Energy Resources Australia bought the Jabaluka site from Pan Continental, uh, but it stayed underdeveloped under the Hawke and Keating governments. And in 1993, when Keating was Prime Minister, Kakadu National Park also obtained World Heritage status, which also became significant later in the campaign that followed. In 96, the newly elected Howard government was presented an opportunistic environmental impact statement by Energy Resources Australia. Opportunistic, of course, because they knew that the coalition government was very pro-uranium mining. And by 1997, the Howard government had approved this environmental impact statement. And by 1998, the construction was already starting with the approval of both federal and Northern Territory governments. So that is a quite long but condensed background from uh, you know 1969 until the Howard government sort of beginnings, if you like. And I'll now talk a little bit about the struggle that arose from the proceeding uh, of the mining and the construction of the mining. So even when there was a kind of anticipation in 95 that the Howard government was going to get elected, Aboriginal landowners and people who supported them, like environmental activists, students, scientists, uh, concerned citizens and workers actually already started to vocally oppose mining at Jabaluka. Uh, so this already began um, before Howard was even elected and before the policy got in, instated. The Gunjemi Aboriginal Corporation formed in 1995 in order to represent concerns about mining on country and started working with receptive environmental groups to stimulate public awareness. Traditional owner Yvonne Margarula pursued a legal case against the government on behalf of uh, the Mirar people in 1997. And she also led a variety of groups, including the Australian Conservation Foundation, in a loud and wide-ranging campaign against the proposed mine that raised awareness and undertook activities like public meetings, films, exhibitions, and um, so it grew. By 1998, it had become a fully international matter. So uh, the European Parliament passed a resolution to condemn the approval of Jabaluka. And since the Keating government had made Kakadu a World Heritage Site, UNESCO's World Heritage Committee also expressed support for the case of the Mirar people. And I think ultimately followed that expression of support with something more concrete later. And they said it was gravely concerned about the serious impacts on the living cultural values of Kakadu National Park posed by the proposal. So importantly for us, the legal and high-level institutional challenges to the mine were bolstered massively, not only by the significant speaking tours, by a documentary, by huge publicity campaigns by the Mirar people, 
environmental groups and supporters, and of course by the internationalization of the issue, but by the direct action work of a group called the Jabaluka Action Group, or JAG, which first formed in 97. JAG saw their role as publicizing the cause of the Mira people and crucially providing them with funding and to, quote, put people on the streets in direct and active opposition to the mine. So the support from multiple groups that were non-Indigenous of the struggle of the Mirar people was critical because by the 1990s there had also been a shift in the cultural and political landscape and under the Keating government there had been a public recognition of Indigenous issues in a way that wasn't really previously the case and there was an increased consciousness uh, among the non-Indigenous population of Indigenous cultural land rights. So while previously the interests of Indigenous people were seen as separate from and unrepresentative of the non-Indigenous Australian population's interests writ large, the reality of this shift in public and official sentiment, which included a recognition within the Australian legal system, uh, meant that there was this potential that came up for organising across many groups in support of Indigenous land struggles, and this continued to open up. JAG also gathered support very crucially from universities and other educational institutions, uh, which participated in marches and put on things like music and comedy gigs as fundraisers. Famously, the band Midnight Oil also associated itself with the campaign and drew a lot of public attention to it. And this happened all around the country, so hundreds of people in Melbourne protested, for example, outside the offices of the mining company North Limited, uh, including building workers. And as part of the building of wider support, leaflets from JAG got translated into languages of significant minority groups in cities like Melbourne as well. Very importantly, it also, JAG, that is, linked the struggle against the Jabaluka mine with the struggle against nuclear weapons by explaining that nuclear weapons that killed thousands of people had been tested on Aboriginal country in Maralinga in South Australia in the 1950s. And all of these different links made it unfathomable on several fronts to support the extraction of radioactive materials from the perspective of the people who lived on the lands where they were extracted, as well as those who lived on the lands where they would be tested as weapons, and then, of course, to the potential mass killing that the weapons ultimately served. JAG emphasised what they referred to as a green and red alliance from environmental groups such as Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace and the Victorian Greens, together with trade union support, which was very extensive. Speakers from trade unions would often be included on the lineups at marches in major cities, uh, and the Victoria Trade Hall Council was among the signatories of the JAG newsletters. And the amount of funding that came from uh, the trade unions, uh, or at least donations or money toward the campaign was quite substantial. So the Australian Meat Industry Employees Union, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, Uh, Then we had student unions like RMIT, Swinburne, La Trobe, NTEU more broadly, uh, the Textile Clothing and Footwear Union, the Australian Nursing Federation and the Australian Education Union all gave money to the campaign. So this is is big in terms of our union support. In March of 1998, uh, a blockade camp at Kakadu that included around 5,000 people um, depending on which account you read, from a coalition of groups all over Australia, from all over Australia, started on site in support of the Mirar People's campaign against the Jabaluka uranium mine. Uh, now, again, depending on which sources you read, 500 to 600 people were arrested during this blockade, 
including uh, traditional landowner uh, Yvonne Margarula. One of the charges was trespassing, or the main charge was trespassing, which of course people were outraged by because Yvonne Margarula was on her own land. So this, the kind of public outrage that this sparked was a very significant part of um, the effect of the actual blockade and ultimately of the arrests <laughs> that, that happened during it. Um, so the blockade persisted for eight months and it was really bolstered by a lot of media coverage and popular support and rallies across the country, uh, as well as the economic and public support, as mentioned. And you had a key political figures um, such as Bob Brown also partaking and being a big part of the campaign. And one of the key things that helped was this um, vigil that was held in response to Margarula's arrest, which does speak to some aspects of the value of I suppose, um, you know, media-friendly spectacle as a show of, like, what kind of solidarity is happening around the country. In some instances, tactics included sabotage, direct sabotage by environmental activists as well. So it wasn't just sitting there. They actually actively actively did things. So, um, for instance, in August 1998, mining equipment got disarmed by uh, a group called Jabaluka Plowshares. Two people used an anniversary of the bombing of Nagasaki as the occasion to hammering and throwing human blood over mining equipment. And in the end, not only was the campaign and blockade a success, ultimately, although initially the mine did proceed, uranium in Jabaluka remains in the ground 25 years later. So not only was that that a success from that perspective, but it actually led to an entire shift in policy on uranium mining that effectively shut down the industry for years. In the Jabaluka Long-Term Care and Maintenance Agreement of 2005, Rio Tinto, who had purchased North Limited in, in the year 2000, was legally compelled to gain Mirac people's consent before developing Jabaluka, which it um, unsurprisingly did not receive. In 2021, the former ranger site was compelled to shut its operations, which marked basically the end of uranium mining in Kakadu. I'll just briefly touch on uh, or summarise the kind of what we can learn aspect from this, and people are you know, welcome to pick up on any of the strands of that that they'd like to. So I think a sizable and persistent direct action and civil disobedience campaign at the site itself was very important and very successful, but it could be also seen as a, let's say, a large punctuation mark in the broader enduring campaign that had started fully two years earlier, if not earlier even. And I guess another way of putting it is that uh, the direct action itself was to use today's horrible corporate language, scaffolded um, by uh, sustained, um, persistent, society-wide, large-scale and ultimately political support um, and financial. And it had a very, very clear goal, shut down the mine. Very comprehensible, (laughs) clear goal. Uh, Another aspect is that the groups and individuals who worked in solidarity with the Mirar people ranged massively in their nature from environmental NGOs to students to trade unions. But across the board, campaigning was bold, it was often creative, and it was upheld by consistent movement building and grassroots campaigning, not just at the site, but across the country at multiple levels, from the streets to the media, to the parliament, to the courts and beyond. There was also the fundamental aspect of what started as a grassroots campaign from below with a clear singular goal, um, which as it gathered support, linked the struggle of the Mirar people to wider existing struggles, such as that of the anti-war movement, environmental concerns and human rights concerns more broadly, which was why it was, um, of course, able to garner international support in the way it did. And finally, the campaign goal was widely understood 
It spoke to a large cross-section of the population. Uh, it actively involved workers in their unions and, of course, appealed to their interests in challenging the power of corporations. And it was pursued doggedly together with the traditional landowners until it ultimately won. And perhaps most importantly, the political grassroots struggles that were related to the original campaign continued well beyond the peak period of media and public attention. So again, we're talking about a sustained campaign that rode the waves but continued beyond the peak moment of, um, of kind of mass interest. And as a result, the former Ranger mine site has now become a place for rehabilitation and revegetation. And the goal of landowners is now to lead a transition into a post-mining regional economy. And the success of this goal will obviously depend on the continued public support of and solidarity with the Mirar people, a very small population of people in numbers, in their pursuit of real self-determination and agency over country with which they have cultural and historical ties. Yeah, yeah.